Hey everyone, this is Tim Harris. I'm the pastor of Woodburn Baptist Church and this is our weekly podcast. Hope it encourages you. Hope it makes you want to be closer to Jesus and more like him. Hope you enjoy this sermon. And if you want to know more about us, find us online at woodburnbaptist.org. In your Bibles to John chapter 11. Do I hear the announcements? We're having little Debbies on Wednesday night now. Uh, he just let, the, he said that like that wasn't going to be the biggest day of our week, maybe our month, maybe our lives. Uh, it all depends. Uh, I, I'm just, I don't know what to expect really, but I'm just sort of picturing little Debbie heaven. You know what I mean? Like, I hope Warren knows, like nobody's ever just eaten one little Debbie. Have you ever in your life? I think a serving is a box, right? Isn't that how little Debbie's work? Uh, what's your favorite? Oatmeal cream pies. Yeah, who said that? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. Oh, gosh. You know, they make the big ones that are a little bit bigger and a little bit thicker. Oh, gosh, yeah. I haven't had lunch yet. What else, y'all? What's your favorite? Zebra cakes are really, really good. What'd you say, January? Cosmic brownies. That sounds like something from the 60s or 70s that we shouldn't actually enjoy. Cosmic brownies. Yeah, those are good. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, me too. Whatever Little Debbie's making, yeah. I thought everybody in the world liked Little Debbie's until staff meeting. It turns out our children's pastor, Nicole Buckman, says she doesn't like any of them. I know, I know. That's what I said. It's like, I mean, Little Debbie is like part of my family, you know? Um, anyway, we will make a believer out of her on Wednesday night. I'm sure with one Swiss cake roll or something, uh, we can change her mind. That's Wednesday night. First Wednesday, we always try to make them special, so don't miss that. Wednesday night at 6. Uh, today, I don't think we've said it yet, uh, Dollar Club, fifth Sunday of every month. Uh, we just try to take up some sort of special collection for local ministries, local missions. And today, if you'll put a dollar in the gray bucket on your way out, we'll be supporting the Pregnancy Support Center Life Center in Russellville, which is opening a new branch in Franklin. Uh, this is your opportunity to make a difference for young women who are in a crisis pregnancy. We want to make it easier for them to keep their baby and easier for them to imagine themselves being moms. So uh, the money we spend today, the money you put in those buckets supports those ministries directly. And then also there's a playpen uh, in the lobby and we're just loading that full of diapers, wipes, uh, what else do babies need? Diapers, wipes. It's been a long time. Onesies, clothes, yeah, whatever new babies need. Fill it up in that, in that uh, playpen. And, and again, we'll go directly to support uh, young women who are choosing to keep their babies. So God bless them. John chapter 11, as you know, I'm in the middle now of a sermon series entitled, I Have My Doubts. I think by now you've gotten over the fact that your pastor is saying that out loud. I am a person who has struggled with doubts, sometimes quite a bit in seasons of my life of faith. Uh, but if you think that's strange, I invite you to read the Bible. Uh, read the Bible. The more I read of the characters in Scripture, the more I realize that I have found my people. Uh, they are champions of faith, no question about that, and yet they move forward in faith with all kinds of other mess, you know, sort of coming along, doubts, questions, fears, uh, you name it. And the Bible makes no effort to varnish over that. It just reveals the champions, our heroes of faith, um, as 
no different or no better, uh, nobody else and other than who they are. And, and I love that. That's how I know that I've, I, I found my people. Uh, the doubt starts right in the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve are in the garden and the serpent slithers up to whisper into Eve's ear. Remember a couple of weeks ago I said that doubt becomes most dangerous when you are tempted to doubt the character of God. And that's exactly the nature of doubt that the devil plants right from the very beginning in the heart of Eve when he says, did God really say? And, 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 and the devil says, uh, he's just trying to, you know, he knows that if you eat of that fruit that you'll, you'll live forever. I mean, he's just... Uh, honestly trying to cause Eve to think that God is keeping good things from her, causes her to question, to doubt the very character of God. And that's the first seed of doubt planted by the devil himself. But uh, the story just goes on and it doesn't matter who you name. You can see the same kind of struggle, the same kind of wrestling that you know in your own life of faith. You don't have to go far in Genesis to get to the story of Abraham. Abraham and Sarah hear the promise from God that they're going to have a baby which in the beginning must have sounded like amazing news because they weren't able to conceive and now the news that they would have a baby, that they would have children as many as stars in the sky, like sand on the shore. And, and I'm sure that in the beginning they were excited. I'm sure that early on Sarah ran straight to Target and registered, you know, for all of the baby things. I'm sure in the beginning they, they turned the office at home into a nursery. I'm sure in the beginning they were all about it, but it took so long. It took so long between God's promise and the fulfillment that by the time God came back to say, oh yeah, by the way, about that baby, you're about to have one. What does Sarah do? She laughs. Why does she laugh? Because she's 90. That's a long time to wait, and you don't see a lot of 90-year-old women registering down the baby aisle at Target. Not to mention the fact that her husband Abraham is 100. So they laugh. Right in God's face. They laugh, and if you think God wasn't somehow in on the joke, I don't think you understand how God works, because God said, okay, you laugh, so just to remind you of this moment, how about when the baby's born, we just name him Laughter. Yeah, the name Isaac means laughter. Let's just call him Laughter, so every time they call the roll at Rich Pond School, you're going to be reminded of this moment. Yeah, they laugh right in God's face. Face. I mean, Moses at the burning bush, God taps him on the shoulder and says, I have a job for you. And Moses says back to God, you got the wrong guy. That's what Moses says. You got the wrong guy. Moses says something like, yeah, God, I, I, I don't think that I could really be the one that you use because I can't really speak in public. I, st 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 I stutter. And God says, well, did I stutter? Because I think I said you're going to go and you're going to stand before Pharaoh and you're going to set my people free. Moses said, you got the wrong guy. Now, Moses' kind of doubt is probably more like my kind of doubt in yours, and we're going to talk about this more, but, but just let me say, I don't think that Moses doubts what God can do. Moses isn't doubting that God means business and that God is great and that God is powerful and that God is able to do everything that God says he's going to do. What Moses doubts is that God can do all that through him. You know, I don't so much doubt God most of the time. I doubt me. If God's going to involve me, I have an infinite gift at messing things up. 
Any part of this, it's got to do with me. I'm probably going to mess it up. And so for that reason, throughout Scripture, you find people struggling, not so much with faith in God, but just that belief that God can be God in their lives. Gideon. God taps Gideon on the shoulder, just like Moses, and Gideon says, ain't no way, you got the wrong guy. There's no way I could be what you need me to be. So what does Gideon do? Gideon says, if you're really serious about this, I'm going to need a sign. Now, I don't know how needing a sign from God fits into faith and doubt. I just know that the whole lot of us got a little bit of Gideon in us, man. We, we need a sign. Gideon says, I'm going to need a sign from you, God. So God gives Gideon his sign, exactly the sign he needed. God gives Gideon a sign. And what does Gideon do after that? He wants another sign. Yeah. You can get stuck in that little process because I'm telling you, until you're made up your mind to step out in faith, there ain't enough signs in the world, you know? Gideon said, I'm going to need a sign. David fills the Psalms with songs and prayers. It's the hymnal. It's the prayer book in the Old Testament, Psalms. David fills the Psalms with complaints. Have you read the Psalms? I mean, it's just full of God. How long? How long are you going to turn away from me? Where are you? Why aren't you listening to me? I mean, on and on. He complains. He cries out to God. I think God put those Psalms in the Bible so you and I can hear what it sounds like when a real person with real faith prays real prayers in real life. That's what it sounds like. I mean, any place you go in, in Scripture, this is the kind of thing you find. It's people. Call them heroes of faith if you want, but sometimes when you look at it, it doesn't seem that heroic. Zechariah in the temple before God, and God taps him on the shoulder, and Zechariah says, ain't no way, you know? I mean, these people doubt. They question but they move forward. That's the theme. They move forward. They don't ever get stuck. They just keep moving forward. And that's what makes them amazing. And that's how I know I've met my people. Now, if you look at the Bible, as I say, these heroes, these champions of faith, it's still like one big doubters club. And you and I are invited to be a part of it. And if it is a big doubters club, then probably we have a president or at least a chairman of the club. And I think the chairman of the Biblical Doubters Club should be Thomas. Yeah, Doubting Thomas. Let's take a look at Thomas. He's known as the doubter. You and I call him the doubter, but the Bible never calls him the doubter. Not one time. That's not Thomas's nickname in the Bible. So let's be clear about that. At the same time, Thomas does learn to believe the same way you and I learn to believe, and that means he has to wrestle with doubt. So uh, let's take a look at Thomas. Open your Bibles to start in John chapter 11. John chapter 11. I need you to open a Bible today. I need you to keep your Bible open and follow me because I'm going to be in the Word a lot. John chapter 11. Now what we're about to do is read three different episodes from the gospel, from Jesus's life and ministry, but these are three episodes that Thomas is going to butt into. Now, in none of these instances is a story about Thomas, but Thomas is going to butt in every time. And so pay attention to Thomas. The story's not about Thomas, but pay attention to Thomas. John chapter 11 is where we'll start. 
In John chapter 11, this is the beginning of the longer story of when Jesus brings Lazarus back from the dead. But before that, he is in another place and has to uh, get the disciples together to go to where Lazarus is. And that's where we are in John chapter 11. Wait for Thomas. All right, let's go. John chapter 11, verse 1. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother, Lazarus, was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus stayed, although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. All right, verse 8. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you really going there again? Verse 16, jump down, verse 16. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go to and die with Jesus. All right, those are Thomas's first spoken words in the New Testament. And this is what he said, let's just go. We'll go die with Jesus. Does that sound like a doubter to you? And we call him the doubter. Does that sound like a doubt? I mean, verse 16 is a verse that we just blow right through because we got to get to the tomb of Lazarus and bring Lazarus back from the dead. But, but don't blow right past verse 16. We learned some things here about Thomas. First off, he does have a nickname. It's not the doubter. His nickname is the twin. He's called the twin. Lazarus, I mean, Thomas must have a twin. How many, am I mixing those up a lot? Okay, all right, because all of a sudden my brain's like, uh, Thomas is known as the twin. So obviously he must have a twin. Uh, so that's his nickname. Beyond that, what he says here, Let's go to, let's go, let's go die with Jesus. That doesn't sound like a doubter to me. Now, it's obvious that he's about a court low in positivity. Remember Winnie the Pooh? What was, what was, was, it, what was the donkey, Eeyore? Eeyore? You know, this sounds like Eeyore. You know, let's just go die with him too, you know. Um, <laughs> it's just that. It's, it's, if he were more positive, he would say, let's go. It's going to be okay. Everything will work out. This is, it's all good. Let's go. It's all, it'll be all, it's all going to be all right. But Thomas is just not a, it's going to be all right kind of guy. He is negative by nature. That's just Thomas. But understand something else about Thomas. He does not let that negativity, he does not let his doubt paralyze him. And this is what you must understand. You can't let doubt paralyze you. Now, a, a couple of things here. Um, in Hebrews chapter 11, which is called the faith chapter, there's a definition of faith there which says, now faith is the uh, substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So we're told right there, faith has to do with hope. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith has to do with hope. 
And hope has to do with the future, the way things turn out. You understand? Faith has to do with the future, the way things turn out. So if faith is connected to hope, this is why I've said, I've been saying in this series, I don't think that faith and doubt are necessarily opposites. Because faith has to do with hope. I don't think that doubt is the opposite of faith. I think that despair, hopelessness, is the opposite of faith. So notice here in this particular instance, it's the outcome that they don't know. Have no idea what's going to happen if they follow Jesus back to Judea. A couple of days ago, 11 disciples are reminding Jesus, 11 days ago, they wanted to kill you and nothing's changed. If you go back there, they will want to kill you. All right, now let me just say, their assessment of the situation back in Judea is exactly right. They are right on target. They're right. They did want to kill Jesus, and they probably still want to kill Jesus. Those facts are facts. But notice what Thomas says. Thomas has no idea how things will turn out. They may kill Jesus. They may kill all the disciples. Y'all know, right? They are going to kill Jesus. I mean, they're exactly right. This is not going to be a story where Jesus comes out alive except after the very end. They are going to kill Jesus. But Thomas is the kind of man with the kind of faith that says, okay, whatever, if they're going to kill Jesus, we're going to go and die with them. It's that faith. It's that commitment. Now, understand, he doesn't know how things will turn out. He doesn't know the outcome, and faith doesn't guarantee any outcomes. It doesn't. And faith isn't really the kind of thing that lets you know things for sure. I don't think faith is to know for certain, because faith doesn't work with that kind of certainty. Remember, it's the evidence of things hoped for. It's the condition of things not seen. If you can see it and prove it, it doesn't take faith. Faith has to do with the things that there's not any earthly evidence for. No physical seeing, tasting, touching. You understand? Faith is a different way of knowing. And I would say faith isn't really knowing for certain. It's hoping for certain. Because faith is the evidence of things hoped for. You understand? So Thomas has no idea how this will turn out. He doesn't know the outcome because faith doesn't have to know the outcome. Faith just knows that it's going to follow Jesus, and that's what Thomas says. You take your doubts, your questions, your uncertainty, and you just continue right on following Jesus. This is what Thomas does. So what you have to learn from him is this ability not to let your doubt paralyze you. You're going to have doubt. All through Scripture, they had questions, they have doubt, they have fear, they have weird feelings about how this is going to go, but none of that stops them from moving forward in faith. Make sense? All right, turn now to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Another famous moment with Jesus. We're in the upper room. Jesus is talking to the disciples about everything that's going to happen. Jesus is delivering now in John chapter 14 this amazing, amazing speech that begins, let not your hearts be troubled. I read this at a lot of funerals. This is one of everybody's favorite passages, but I want you to pay attention to how Thomas butts into it. I mean, Thomas butts into this amazing message from Jesus. John chapter 14, let's read. Let not your hearts be troubled. I love this so much. 
You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, so that where I am, there you may also be. In verse 4, and you know the you know the way to where I'm going. Verse five, no, we don't. <laughs> this is Thomas. No, I, I mean, Jesus was just, I mean, that was beautiful. Let not your heart be troubled. I mean, Jesus, I mean, can I just say, he's crushing it here. He's crushing this speech. And Thomas ruins it. Thomas ruins it by saying what everybody else is thinking. Jesus says, you know the way to where I'm going. No, we don't, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you're going. So how can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I love that. Thomas is my guy right here, y'all. Thomas is my guy. Jesus is... uh, laying so much on the, I mean, this is so much for the disciples. Jesus has told them, been telling them in the upper room that, you know, this is the end, that he's going to be turned over to sinful men. He'll be killed. He'll be in the grave. He'll come back in three days, and then he's going to go back to the Father, and he'll send the Holy Spirit. So one way or the other, the disciples are hearing all of this, but what Thomas is stuck on is that part about where Jesus is leaving, Thomas is one of the original 12 disciples who left everything to follow Jesus, but follow Jesus meant you could see Jesus, you could talk to Jesus, you could touch Jesus. I mean, they would share a tent, they would share a fire, they would share meals. I mean, it was a physical following, and that's all they've known. And now Jesus is saying, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. And then Jesus says, I'm leaving, and I want nothing more than you to be with me. So I tell you what, you know, when this is all over, you're going to come be with me, and you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas says, "Uh, excuse me. I mean, Thomas loses his mind right here because this is too much. No, I I don't know where you're going. I I don't even know where you're going. How do I know the way? I I mean, you understand that? And as I say, he's just saying what everybody else is thinking. That's what everybody's thinking. What? But, But nobody else would say it. But Thomas will say it. We don't know where you're going. Now, this goes back to what I said earlier about how for many of us, it's not so much God that we doubt, it's ourselves. And I would say that is true for me personally. I don't doubt what God can do. And I read stories of what God does in other churches with other pastors. And I know God can do amazing things. He can start a revival. He can start a movement. He can change lives. He can, he can do all sorts of things in all sorts of churches with all sorts of pastors. It's just that in the Loneliness of my heart sometimes, I'm not so sure he can do any of that with me. You know? Like, I think Thomas probably believes all the parts of what Jesus is saying that relate to Jesus himself. It's the parts that relate to Thomas where Thomas says, wait a minute, we're in trouble. You ever felt that way? Like somehow, whatever God's gonna do, he can do it, but if he involves you, you're going to mess it up. You ever feel that way? Because I often do. I often think exactly that. 
If it's up to me, I mean, God, if you put any part of this in my hands, I will mess it up. If it's up to me to know what to say, I'm never going to know what to say. If it's up to me to be faithful, I don't know that I can be faithful. If it's up to me, Lord, I mean, I'm going to mess this up. I mean, we don't doubt what God can do. You've heard stories of how God's put families back together. It's just at this point, you don't know if he can put your family back together. You've heard testimonies of how God would take a broken marriage and mend that broken marriage. You're just not all that sure that God can do that with your husband. You know what I'm saying? Gosh, you've heard stories of God setting free those who are you know, trapped in all kinds of addictions. It's just that I'm not sure he can do that with your addiction. You know what I'm saying? Thomas says, mm, Lord, if it's, if it's up to us... <laughs> If you're thinking we somehow are going, going to be able to follow you to where you're going when you're not with us anymore, yeah, it's, it's, it's the part that has to do with me that I doubt. So understand this. It's not enough to trust what Jesus can do if you doubt what Jesus can do with you. What Jesus can do with you and for you and through you, it doesn't make much of a difference how much you believe God can do if you don't really think he can do it with you. This is where Thomas is hopeful. Lord, we don't know. We don't know. I mean, it's, 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 it's where Thomas puts his focus. You know, if it's up to me, if it's up to us, we don't know. Lord, you may think we know, but we don't know. And notice how Jesus instantly brings the calm, brings the peace, brings the confidence back by just switching the focus back. What does Jesus say? Thomas, I am the way. I mean, the focus is back on Jesus, which is where your faith is supposed to be directed. You're not putting faith in yourself. It's not faith in your ability to know anything or your ability to do anything. Your faith is in Jesus. Your faith is in the Lord, the powerful, majestic, great God who he is. I'm telling you, he can be that great in you. This is how faith works. It's personal. It has to be personal. You have to believe that he can do these things for you. So one more. John chapter 20. John chapter 20. End of the story. The resurrection. It's Easter Sunday. We'll pick up in John chapter 20, verse 19. Once more, watch for Thomas. John chapter 20, verse 19. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you. Shalom, he said. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. And they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Verse 24. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others. Now, I don't know where he had to be, but I guarantee you he's never stopped kicking himself for missing church at night. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, named the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we've seen the Lord. But Thomas replied, I won't believe it. I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. I won't believe it, Thomas said. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, 
Put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound on my side. Stop doubting and believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed, and Jesus told him, you believe because you've seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. All right, this is probably the the passage where Thomas gets his reputation because Jesus himself says, Thomas, stop doubting. I mean, Jesus says it, stop doubting. Jesus says it the same way you talk to your teenager, same way you talk to your fifth grader, like you'd say, hey, put your phone down. You know, stop doubting. It's as if it's just that easy, just stop and and believe. Like you have a switch, a little toggle switch that you can switch from doubt to believe. Jesus says, stop doubting. Now believe. As if it's that easy. For Thomas, notice how Jesus does not rebuke him for being a doubter. As a matter of fact, Jesus obviously knows exactly what Thomas has said, and Jesus gives Thomas exactly what Thomas needs for faith. All Thomas is asking for is what everybody else got. Everybody else got to see Jesus in the flesh. Everybody else got to touch the wounds and see his side. Everybody else got to talk and eat with Jesus. They had a personal experience with Jesus. And that's all Thomas says he wants. He says, I will not believe it until I have a personal experience. I want Jesus to appear to me. I want to see the wounds. I want to touch his hands. I want to see his side. I want it for myself. Let me tell you something. There's nothing wrong with that. As a matter of fact, I would say that's very, very important. Genuine faith is based on firsthand experience. It's got to be firsthand experience. Thomas refuses to take anybody else's word for it. And in that sense, he's a good example. You need to know Jesus for yourself. You need firsthand knowledge. I mean, some of you in this house, some of you in the sound of my voice, you, you say that you have faith, but the kind of faith you have is, uh, is far removed from any kind of personal experience. You kind of depend upon the faith of other people, like your grandparents. You had a good godly grandma. My grandma, she shouted in her church, and she was little bitty, but oh, she prayed. And I'm telling you, you can talk about the faith of your grandma, or you can talk about the faith of your parents. Man, my parents, they took me to church. They were so faithful. I was always in church. My parents, if anybody's going to be in heaven, my mom and daddy are in heaven. I don't doubt that. I'm just not so sure about you. You have to have your own faith. Oh, Pastor Tim, my wife, she, I'm telling you, every morning I wake up, my wife's already in the kitchen. She's got her coffee and she's got her Bible open. My wife just reads the Bible and prays. She's the best Christian lady I know. That is fantastic for her. What about you? I mean, you understand, right? Heaven isn't like the kind of thing where the invitations go out and everybody gets a plus one. And you're going to be somebody's plus one. Like you're just going to get to go because of your grandma or because your mama. No. It's personal. Faith is personal. Salvation is personal. You have to have firsthand experience. You have to know Jesus for yourself. You have to pray for yourself. You have to read the Bible for yourself. You have to walk with Christ. You have to have faith, and it's got to be personal faith. God has children. I don't think he has any grandchildren. You have to know Jesus yourself. 
Thomas just demands a firsthand experience and that's exactly what Jesus gives him. And it's the same thing you need. The thing about talking about faith is personal. Doubt is personal. Doubt is personal. As most of you know, I was raised in church. Um, as I said last week, I was spoon-fed the Bible by people who lived and loved the Word of God. So all of that is good. I'm blessed for that. I got saved when I was six years old. Six. Six. So what happens is at some point, probably I was 12, 13, right in that, in that age, that's when my doubt started. 12, 13. And, and some of you who were saved early in life, you're going to tell the same kind of story. 12 or 13, I just began to question, what, what did I do? And what did I know? I was six years old. I mean, yeah, I prayed a prayer and I asked Jesus to forgive all of my sins. But let's be honest, I was six. It wasn't like I was you know, caught up in sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I was six. I was a sinner. But what did I know? And what did I even say? I don't remember what I said. I went to the pastor. I don't know what he said. I don't remember all of that. I mean, so what happened? And, and was it real? I mean, those questions were genuine for me, and they were personal. Do you understand? Doubt is personal. That's why it's so hard for us to talk about our doubts in front of other people. Because it makes us vulnerable. Doubt is personal. Faith can be borrowed. You can get faith from your grandma and your mama, or you think you can, but doubt is always personal. It comes up from a very, very deep place inside of you, and that's how my doubts operated. It was personal. But remember last week how I said that my doubt was like ants in the pants of faith. And this is how it works. This is how doubt can work because my doubt was very personal and I started asking questions. What did I know and what happened? And, and what if I didn't say it right or what if I didn't pray it right or what if the pastor didn't know what he was doing? I'm asking all of these questions because I was just so young. I was six, you all. I was still picking my nose and wiping it on the couch. What did I know? Do you understand how important those questions were to ask? It's exactly what I needed to do. Ask myself, what did I know and what did I do? And what happened and did anything happen? Do you understand? That doubt was personal, but because the doubt was so personal, when I worked my way through that, it led me to a deeper, more personal faith. The doubt is personal and the doubt can lead you, I'm telling you, straight into a very, very deep and personal faith. This is how doubt can work. It's how it can be the ants in the pants and it's how Thomas's doubt works. Notice how Thomas, every time he's got a doubt, he takes it straight to Jesus, straight to Jesus. You do that, I'm telling you, I don't know that your doubt will be erased, but it will be redeemed. You will not be paralyzed and doubt will not destroy you. Thomas doubts, he takes it straight to Jesus. And Jesus says, Thomas, stop doubting. Believe. Is it that easy? I mean, like you can just flip a switch, you know, doubt, believe. 
I'm not saying it's easy, but I do think it's that simple. I mean, Jesus makes it sound like a choice you can make. Stop doubting, believe. I mean, it's a command, so it's got to be a choice. So you've got a choice here. What's the choice? Can you just flip a switch? I, I would say no. No. Literally what Jesus says to Thomas, he doesn't use the word doubt. He uses the word unbelief. So he says, stop unbelieving, <laughs> believe. Which I like that somehow. That's so weird. Stop unbelieving and believe, you know. So Thomas is that guy that had a little bit of both because he could go either way, you know. He could live out of this unbelief and be paralyzed, but he never does. Jesus is just saying, hey, stop unbelieving, believe. Like all of the other heroes of faith in the Bible, Thomas is the guy who's got to wrestle with fear and uncertainty and questions and doubts, doubts about himself and Somehow, if you're going to follow Jesus, you just got to, at some point, go with the faith you've got. If you're waiting for the faith that removes all doubt, there's no such thing, not this side of heaven. You go with the faith you've got. The man cried out to Jesus and said, I believe, just help my unbelief. You go with the faith you've got. Thomas is the guy who always takes his doubts straight to Jesus. And in the process, he moves forward with a very strong kind of faith. I'm saying you can do the same thing. Stop doubting. Believe. Stop unbelieving. Believe. It's uh, not easy, but it's that simple. You get to decide whether you live stuck in your doubt or whether you move forward in faith. That is a choice you can make. Pray with me.